This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to this Resolution Foundation event. We're here to talk about the autumn statement because it happened yesterday and even you, the British public, haven't got such a short attention span that you've forgotten uh, yet, although you will have done by about 8pm tonight, I would have thought. So while we've still got you paying some attention, we're going to tell you a little bit about what's really going on behind both the economic forecasts yesterday, but also the much larger than expected, in fact, some would say excessive list of policy announcements that were also included in the autumn statement. We're going to do that by giving you a run through of the Resolution Foundation's overnight analysis of the autumn statement called a pre-election statement. That gives you a clue about what it's going to tell you Them that came out from the team. And I should say thank you to the, not quite, but basically the entire Resolution Foundation team who are up over the night, making sure that you had that ready to roll this morning. Those of you here in person will get your free copy on the way out the door if you didn't get it on the way in the door. The, um, the printers are rolling. The, um, those of you online can go and have a look at it on the website because we're obviously going to touch on some of what is in there today. So to take you through that, you're first of all going to hear from James Smith, who's a research director here at the Resolution Foundation. The, um, and don't be mean to him, he's had zero uh, sleep. And then we've got a great panel. You're going to hear from the chair of the Office for Budget Responsibility who gave us his forecasts yesterday, Richard Hughes, and then Louise Hellam, who's the chief economist, recently appointed. So congratulations to Louise. Everyone give her a clap for getting appointed. <laughs> Thank you. Clap for being the chief economist. Obviously, less clap for the whole CBI thing recently. But, the, um, uh, but you know, we're through that, Louise. We're powering on. Thanks Sun for bringing that up, Tostin. Sorry, that's what we're here for. <laughs> it's, a kind of, it's a friendly safe space here. The, um, and then you're going to hear from Harriet Baldwin, who's the chair of the Treasury Select uh, committee. She's going to be joining us in any minute now. And then you can all ask us any questions. As always, those in the room, put your hands up. Those of you online can go on to Slido and put your questions in there and we'll take them as we go. So Jane's going to kick us off because I was going to, while he walks to the podium, is that a podium? Lectern. I'll give you a little anecdote. So I moved house this weekend. Big mistake. Don't move house the weekend before a fiscal statement. If you're in my line of business, it's very bad for blood pressure. But I went into a new supermarket for the first time. What were they selling? Mince bloody pies. Because Christmas starts earlier every year. Not just in supermarkets, but in fiscal events. James, take right. us away. Thank you, Torsten. And good morning, everyone. Let me add my uh, welcome to Torsten. And uh, particularly also thank the research team at the Resolution Foundation. Been working very hard overnight. No one harder than Torsten, I don't think. I don't think he's actually slept for about a month with the house move. So maybe you should have a nap while I'm talking, Torsten. I won't, I won't take it personally. Don't do yourself down, James. Uh, but, um, Always electric. But my, um, my job this morning is to take you through a, a bigger-than-expected autumn statement. To set the scene for this, let me sort of remind you of the Jeremy Hunt of a few weeks ago, where it was all very difficult. There was no fiscal headroom. We were basically going to have a non event as a uh, autumn statement and we were sort of thinking of this as a kind of technocrat uh, chancellor uh, thinking back to the sort of post mini budget time but actually what we ended up getting yesterday was was at least a start to the uh, to the pre-election giveaway so it was more like Santa Jeremy yesterday uh, rather what, what than, is that uh, rather than our technocrat uh, Jeremy so with the so there's definitely 
a lot of policy in the autumn statement, a lot, uh, a lot of giveaways, some, uh, some, you know, that shouldn't be seen as permanent. So let me uh, give you a little bit of a, a tour of what's going on. And the real way to think about all this is, is to sort of start with the economy where things have, have really changed. So I'll jump straight in there uh, with, a, with a nice complicated chart to get you all going first thing in the morning. But this shows the change in the outlook for real GDP. So on the right, you've got where we were back in March. On the left, you've got uh, the latest forecast. We compare the OBR uh, at the top of both of these charts to um, a set of other forecasts. You can see on the left of both these charts, growth has been revised up um, in the near term. So we're expecting growth to the economy to contract this year. It's now going to grow about half a percent. But beyond that, uh, growth is actually weaker in this in this forecast. So the OBR have revised down that, that medium term uh, forecast. So we've got a bit more gloomy about where the where the forecast has gone. And uh, we note that um, this is the sort of weakest backdrop to a general election in over three decades. So back to 1992, you have to find an election year where uh, we were in quite such weak, weak growth. Uh, but the big change on the economy side is really on, if I can get my slides going, the real change is on the inflation side. So inflation has come in higher than the OBR expected back in March. You could see that the very start of the black line. But the medium term forecasts for inflation have also been revised up quite a bit. So we have something like 7% uh, increase in the, in the price level in consumer terms and a similar economy-wide GDP deflator level. So all this leaves the cash size of the economy, not the real uh, size I was just talking about. That's pretty much unchanged. But the cash size is up something like 5.5%. And that's a massive boost in terms of the um, uh, how much tax the economy is really generating. So the combination of higher cash economy, higher wages and employment, plus signs that the economy is really generating more tax than we thought, basically push up uh, tax revenues uh, quite substantially. So what I'm going to do is show you the impact of the news from yesterday on borrowing. And these sort of purplish bars are basically the higher receipts uh, that the OBR are seeing and have pushed through the forecast. And you get something like uh, 50 billion average across the forecast period in terms of, in terms of higher receipts. So this is the, a really huge upgrade to the receipts forecast, the biggest in the OBR's history. Um, but said against that, there are some bits of spending that mechanically also rise with inflation. So if you look at these sort of purpley blue bars here, uh, that's mainly debt interest and uh, what's going on with welfare spending. And the combination of the inflation effects on receipts and spending basically left borrowing in a sort of 90 billion cumulative better position by 27, 28 um, in terms of the uh, in terms of the OBR's forecast, and the Chancellor's um, pretty much spent all of it. So not quite all of it, ninety six percent, but uh, he basically spent all of that in terms of a big sort of tax cut giveaway. So uh, definitely uh, election focused, giveaway focused 
budget uh, autumn statement this time. So uh, I'm going to focus in on those policy measures. But before I do that, let me show you what's going on with the with the public finances. So you can basically see here that uh, the big uh, the big news that we've had um, uh, to those forecasts have basically left uh, borrowing slightly lower than uh, where we were back in March and debt uh, also slightly lower. But a key reason for that slightly lower um, uh, debt line is basically what's happening to nominal GDP. If you, you correct for that, the differences are, are much, much more and the cash size of debt is actually slightly higher in this in this forecast. So uh, pretty tough fiscal outlook here. We shouldn't um, underestimate that. And the very low amount of headroom that the Chancellor has left himself with, 13 billion against his debt falling target uh, in the fifth year of the forecast is risky. So it's risky economically. So this is a, this is a historically large um, expansion of fiscal policy at a time when um, inflation is already high and the Bank of England are battling it. So there's an economic risk that he's taking here. It's fiscally risky because uh, headroom is much lower even than the average amount uh, looking back over the last decade or so. Uh, it's more like double what the Chancellor has allowed himself here, and it's small relative to the size of shocks and uncertainty that we have at the moment. And it's politically risky, apart from anything, because there's likely to be another fiscal event before the election. And we could see some of that headroom reversed, and that could force him into raising taxes or cutting, uh, cutting spending. So there's definitely risks coming, uh, coming through with all this as well. But let me focus in on uh, what's going on with taxes. So you've been hearing all about the big giveaways overnight. There's really two bits to this. There's a sort of 20 billion uh, tax giveaway. Uh, there's even fanfare outside for, for all this, just to, just to help, you, help you through all this. But, um, uh, and that's basically roughly evenly split between a welcome move to make full expensing permanent. So that's the sort of blue bars here. So this is a big boost to um, incentives for firms to undertake certain types of new investment. That's very welcome. Uh, boost GDP, we think a bit conservatively from the OBR by about 0.2% here. So we, you know, it does boost GDP, but um, it also costs about 10 billion. But I'm going to focus in on personal taxes because the big rabbit out of the hat was really the sort of 2p rate cut on uh, national insurance that was uh, basically pretty well uh, trailed uh, by the time um, we we sort of got that. But um, uh, so I'm going to give you a very complicated chart. So basically you have to wrap your wrap a wet towel around your head to look at this chart. And what I'm going to do, what this chart base, what these charts basically do is just compare the impact in green of the uh, national insurance rate cuts yesterday, where you can see this is uh, basically a boost for 29 million workers, an average of about 300 pounds in terms of uh, that giveaway. But when you view it in the context of the um, uh, increases in thresholds that have been already announced and that were pre-existing coming into the autumn statement, you can see that the net impacts of those tax changes for the vast 
majority of people is for um, a bigger hit to uh, to their um, their earnings uh, after after tax as a result of, of all of these measures. So it's important to view um, what happened yesterday in that in that broader context. And to reinforce that, let me show you this uh, chart of taxes relative to GDP. So we got a 20 billion tax giveaway uh, yesterday in the autumn statement, but you have to view that in the context of around something like 90 billion of tax rises that have already been announced, and the vast majority of that is from these threshold freezes. Uh, so the truth is tax is still going up as a share of GDP. There are good reasons for that. We, you know, we're uh, facing higher interest rates, higher debt servicing costs. That's going to push up tax inevitably. We're an older, sicker um, economy still struggling to recover from the pandemic. So there are reasons tax is, is going up and it's hard to, to resist that. But uh, we have a rhetoric of tax cutting, but a reality very much of tax rising. And the increase to something like 38% of GDP for taxes is the equivalent of something like £4,300 per household and the highest level in, in 80 years. So a really, uh, really big rise in, in taxes going on here. The other key thing uh, to keep in mind here in terms of context is basically what has happened here is the effects of inflation on tax revenues has been recognised in the forecast, but the Chancellor has not recognised the impact uh, to any significant degree of inflation on pub public and particularly departmental spending. So there's really, uh, you know, we, we, we saw um, very small top-ups to spending plans in the in the near term and a continuation of the the kind of um, overall envelope updating that the chance, Chancellor has been doing in recent fiscal events. And basically, this leaves real um, real spending, real departmental spending, something like 29, 20 billion lower. So this is basically, you could think of this as um, uh, cuts to public spending, paying for the, the tax cuts that, that have been announced. Um, and this chart just zeroes in on what that means for different, uh, different departments. We don't have a full uh, spending review, so we don't know department by department, but the red line shows a bunch of departments, including health, overseas development aid, defence, where there's some commitment to continuing to increase that spending or at least ring fence it. And what that implies, given the overall envelope that we got yesterday, is really big cuts to those unprotected departments. So in the green line, you can see uh, something like a sort of 14 percent fall in those unprotected departments. So this is if you look to the left of this chart, something like go back to the um, early 2010s levels of austerity. So big cuts, almost certainly absolutely undeliverable given what's going on in terms of overall public services pressures. So um, be very aware that that's underlying what's going on uh, in, this, uh, in this set of announcements. Uh, but let me turn to the living standards impact of all this. Um, so starting with the uh, package of measures announced yesterday. Now you can see this, this is essentially a giveaway. The typical household is about £500 
better off as a result of the blue national insurance changes. A couple of other things to uh, mention here. We're seeing, um, we're, we're basically seeing the, uh, uh, a very welcome cut, uh, very welcome repegging of housing allowance to the 30th percentile of rents in, in different areas. And that really is uh, a very important policy that will be worth uh, something like £50 a week to very high rent areas for uh, those benefit claimants. So really important and welcome policy there. But there is a, a takeaway on the benefits side in the form of um, uh, a tightening of the criteria to um, claim uh, uh, health-related elements of UC. So there's, there's a, a, a cut uh, to benefits as well. So there's quite a lot of measures that, the, um, that were in here trying to boost employment. We saw um, the OBR mark up on the back of all this, uh, their employment forecast. So that is adding to uh, to GDP, so there's there's a uh, a benefit there, but that you know there's there's uh, you know a set of policies here that are not just the the tax ones that have grabbed all the headlines. And if I step back even further and look at what's happening over the over the Parliament as a whole, uh, we're basically seeing uh, a, a, a sort of pretty. Um, if, if this is a, a giveaway mainly to those on higher incomes uh, from uh, from this uh, from this fiscal event, if you look back over the Parliament, the effect is much more progressive, mainly from the, the tax threshold freezes, uh, which are these uh, the the biggest part of these blue tax bars here, but also from other benefit changes which push up on particularly low income households. The uh, taper rate cut that was announced as part of budget 2021 is a kind of key change here. So a much more progressive picture if we look back over the Parliament as a whole. But if we look at living standards over uh, over the Parliament as a whole, you basically see that the combination of uh, high inflation plus uh, these tax rises are a really toxic one for living standards. So the 3.1% fall in real household disposable income over the uh, uh, in the OBR forecast is the, the, the biggest fall in Parliament, in fact the only fall in terms of an overall Parliament, a really difficult backdrop coming into an election year and uh, worth nearly £2,000 per household in terms of uh, income falls. So that's my whistle stop. Uh, hopefully you, you all uh, came with me along, along all of that. Let me summarise this for you. So the pre-election giveaways at least started early with tax cuts uh, overnight and um, uh, implausible spending cuts, the flip side to that. So need to view both of them. Some pretty well-targeted policy. I think we would say national insurance, if you're going to do a personal tax cut, helps in terms of reducing that bias towards working age earnings that's in the tax system, operating and LHA repegging is really welcome in terms of in terms of changes. But some choices less well designed, so tax cutting rhetoric for tax rising reality, the most obvious thing there. Positive on business investment in terms of um, making the um, full expensing permanent, but as part of those um, overall uh, departmental cuts, we're seeing really big cuts to public investment, and that's a pretty 
anti-growth policy uh, right there. So autumn statements uh, very much needs to be viewed in the context of the election, but also in the context of the broader stagnation of the UK economy and our ageing uh, sicker population. So uh, difficult backdrop, but very election focused. Thanks, James. Always, it's always bold to call your audience sicker, older, and slower growing. Uh, but thanks for the thanks for the description um, of us. The, um, so there's a lot going on, right? There's a lot in there, and we didn't even touch the surface. There are a lot of small measures we haven't got into. The planning changes. Don't worry, we can. For those of you looking really sad at the back, the, um, I know that's the gap in your life. Um, there's lots, and also it's really hard to characterise this budget because at one level there's two just big. The actual individual changes are like almost the ones that a technocrat would have written, right? The individual how to do the personal income, the personal tax changes is kind of what an economist would have chosen to a degree. Not the scale, but the way they've been set up. The business investment stuff doesn't do you a lot of political benefit, if I'm honest. But in the long run makes quite could make quite a bit of difference so that's the technocrat side of the autumn statement but then you've got the fact that it's basically covered with these big macro judgments which are definitely in the election context and definitely a bit silly in some cases the public investment numbers which we'll definitely come back to are like a really bad um bad idea but that's what happens when you're in a pre-election phase so it's weird politics plus technocracy normally it's one or the other but you've got like there's so much going on that you've got both now we're gonna hear from richard then harriet so richard come on let's justify your forecasts um so uh, uh, thanks torsten and thanks for the invitation to be here um I, I think that this autumn statement has been one of the more challenging ones to try and interpret and explain um uh, and, it, and it, it is seemingly full of puzzles and paradoxes which i think james did a really nice job of unpacking um, you know, it seems to be an autumn statement where you know taxes are being cut, but the tax burden is going up. Uh, where the autumn statement is boosting growth, but the economy is growing more slowly. Um, you know, the economy seems to be performing worse, but it's generating more revenue for the chancellor. Um, and I think one of the reasons why it is uh, more difficult. You're going to tell us the answer to all of this. Uh, yes, well, I'm okay, going to come on to that. So I think okay, one of the reasons why it is more challenging to explain is that. You know, we are not used to having high levels, unexpectedly high levels of inflation in the UK. It has been a long time since we have seen inflation in double digits. And when you have periods of, of unexpected and sustained high inflation, two things really matter. Uh, one is what kind of inflation you're having. So is it the, just the kind of inflation that raises prices or is it also the kind of inflation that raises wages and earnings? Um, that makes a huge difference to standards of living. It also makes a huge difference to the public finances. And the second thing that really matters from a fiscal point of view is what is frozen and what is indexed. Um, things that are indexed rise in line with inflation. Things that are frozen get eroded in real terms. And you can see how that's played out um, in, over the course of our two forecasts, the one that was in March and the one that we just put out in November. Um, we, you know, a year ago, the kind of inflation we had was, was very much what's called an external terms of trade shock. It just pushed, pushed up the price of everything. It pushed up the price of energy, and, and we are a very gas-dependent country, and so that pushed up the price of everything else. Um, it didn't early on raise wages, um, and we didn't think it was going to raise wages. Um, uh, well, there, there's be as much of a wage response as there's turned out to be. And so one of the reasons why um, our forecast has changed is both inflation's turned out to be a bit more persistent in total than we thought, but also uh, the domestic component of that inflation has turned out to be more important. Um, that means that's better news for living standards because it means that wages are 
are, they're, still they're still behind, but they're not as far behind prices as we expected. It's also good news for the public finances because wages are one of the most important tax bases uh, for the exchequer. It's what, it's, it is the tax base for national insurance. It is the tax base for income tax. Um, and so that it also, you know, when wage, when wage growth turns out to be higher than you think, um, it raises your forecast for income tax and national insurance revenues. Um, and that is, um, that is uh, basically the story of the windfall that the Chancellor got in, in this forecast. But, that, but you know, what it meant in terms of uh, what money he had and, and what he had to spend really mattered uh, the second part of that story, which is you know, what is indexed and what is frozen. And it was particularly because the tax thresholds um, are frozen for an unprecedentedly long period of time between 2022 and 2028. Um, that, that higher, higher uh, wage inflation just drags more and more people into the tax system and more and more people into higher tax bans, um, adding you know, 4 million basic rate taxpayers, 3 million additional rate taxpayers, and by the end of our forecast, generating around £45 billion worth of extra revenue. So um, with, with, with uh, thresholds in the tax system frozen, higher domestic inflation generates lots of uh, cash tax revenues. The other things which are indexed in the public finances are welfare benefits. So those rose uh, you know, to reflect higher inflation and the chance to kept uh, the triple lock be indexed uh, benefits in line with CPI inflation. And then the other thing which is effectively indexed is debt interest payments because they just go up with debt interest and they also rose in line with higher expected inflation. So he got 60 billion pounds in total from higher inflation feeding through into cash revenues. 45 billion of that came from the freezes in the income tax and NIC system. You know, another bit of it came from higher corporation tax, VAT, other things. He lost 20 billion of that from indexing welfare benefits, and he lost another 15 billion of that from the fact that debt interest costs went up. But he was still left with around 20 to 25 billion pounds to spare, um, even after having to pay out on the indexed things in the public finances. Um, what he could have done is also indexed spending on public services, um, which in the public spending system are actually effectively frozen in cash terms unless the Chancellor chooses to change them. Um, he did not choose to change them. He added about $5 billion into them, but he, he would have had to have added $25 billion into them if he wanted to keep them uh, the same in real terms. So what effectively he did is allow them uh, real spending power on public services to fall by £20 billion. Um, and instead, he took the extra £20 million he got from what we call fiscal drag and basically gave it back to taxpayers in the form of a rate cut um, on, on NICS, and he gave it back to businesses in the form of full expensing in the corporate tax system. So that was sort of, um, that's a sort of whistle-stop tour of how higher inflation feeds through into the public finances. Um, fundamentally, it didn't leave the health of public finances any better or worse off. He basically spent all the cash windfall that he got um, from uh, the thresholds being frozen um, and tax revenue on cutting, cutting tax rates. Um, and he didn't change his plans for public spending. Um, and welfare and debt interests have evolved in line with what inflation might tell you to do. So the overall level, the bottom line of this autumn statement was basically zero um, in borrowing terms. Um, and he, he, brought, he took in some extra money uh, from fiscal drag and he gave it back in a rate cut. Very good. That's very helpful, Richard. Thank you very much. The, um, that general point, which is inflation does weird things to household and to the public finances mm. and we have not we're not well practiced mm. at thinking through how that plays out explains mm. a lot of i'm not it's not personal but like how mm. we, how we found it difficult to judge what's actually happening to the public finances over the course of the last two years because we get these big changes and that is does reflect these big choices and you know it's in lots of ways same with the pandemic actually in some ways because mm. you're not used to going through certain kinds mm. of shocks 
I remember we had those resolution foundation paper with an unnamed author a few years back, just as the pandemic was kicking off, saying this is going to cost a lot of money because that's what happened in previous pandemics. And looking at it being like that can't possibly happen. Well, it mm. definitely has. And so if you haven't been through it, you don't think about it. And inflation mm. shock and what it does to public finances definitely we have not thought about. Although somebody was warning about the dangers of higher inflation before it was fashionable to do so, weren't they, Harriet? <laughs> yes, uh, Torsten. Uh, well, thank you very much for having me in this morning. And uh, James, your presentation, very interesting. We're looking forward to having uh, both Torsten and, uh, and Richard in front of our committee next Tuesday, if I can publicise uh, that event. And then the Chancellor will come in front of the committee on Wednesday. And I came in when you had the picture of Jeremy Hunt up as Father Christmas, James. And I have to say that I think uh, if you uh, had gone for the same analogy this time last year, you'd have had the Chancellor up as the Grinch, really, because uh, he came in um, to take some very difficult and very unpopular at the time decisions, um, including this point that has come through so loud and clear in the Resolution Foundation work about the freezing of uh, tax thresholds. And that's because uh, inflation was running at 11.1% when he got to his feet a year ago. And the fact that it's at 4.6%, but importantly, wages, as, as you say, are now running ahead of inflation. It feels like an inflection and a turning point from this very difficult period that my constituents have had to go through where inflation has been running so far ahead of um, of their wage growth. And now uh, we've seen uh, an inflection and that uh, has changed and with the change in terms of, of, of pensioner incomes and uh, benefit incomes now going up by more than the current rate of inflation. I think um, it'll be interesting to see um, how the public finances respond to that situation. And I think what I saw in the 110 supply side measures yesterday, which I confess I've not gone through every single one of the 110, but I know the lens that um, was used was to try and increase the supply side of the economy, uh, the supply side of the labour market, and to address this point that the Bank of England has made uh, to us a number of times that they're concerned that the UK uh, doesn't have a lot of capacity for non-inflationary growth. And so all the measures around planning are really important um, because they do address the supply side um, of the economy. There are also measures about the supply side of crowding in private capital. Now, I'm fascinated by this making permanent the full expensing because it's terribly early days to be making something permanent when you don't know what impact it's had in the real world. I know that, Richard, you've put it down as a 0.2%, I think, overall, the net benefit of all of these supply side uh, measures. Um, but it's um, it's certainly something that's being done to design to address this long-term challenge in terms of um, uh, investment and therefore productivity in the UK economy. So I thought that was an interesting lens. Um, I also think that uh, in terms of the importance of the Office for Budget Responsibility forecasts, 
you know, we've had a big national debate about that. We've clearly uh, ended up in a position where your forecasts uh, really are important. The governor himself emphasised how important it is that all these fiscal events are accompanied by the forecast. And of course, I imagine that the chancellor has a moment of trepidation when you walk into the room uh, before a fiscal event to share with him your, your current numbers. And he must have been very pleasantly surprised to see that that recession that you were forecasting this time last year, you're now forecasting growth this year. So I imagine that is one of the uh, tense moments uh, in the Chancellor's life. And uh, we're, that's... We all love seeing you, Richard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, only, yeah. Only the he must have been much happier when you've when you, when you gone through the numbers than, than uh, as you walked through the door. Because, you know, obviously that, that's the really the key reason why he was able to do what he was able to do. Um, just one point that I want to land on behalf of our committee. Uh, we are still um, not happy that the Office for Tax Simplification was abolished, but we do recognise that the Chancellor has made some simplifications. He made simplifications in terms of the annual allowance and uh, the lifetime allowance. He's made some simplifications, well that was at the last uh, event, he's made some simplifications in terms of national insurance uh, 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 contributions for the self-employed. Um, we will continue to uh, look for um, more simplification. I think that, um, you know, personally, uh, not speaking for the committee, but personally, I am concerned uh, about not just the the, it, it's not just the thresholds being frozen, it's the number of people who then get into these very bizarre withdrawal points in terms of the income. And I think that's something that I would like to see some progress on. So those are my initial observations. I just um, uh, really am uh, keen also to uh, emphasise how important this national living wage move is for the lowest paid. The fact that the number of lowest paid, the lo low paid people in the UK has has already more than halved and that this should actually allow someone working full time on the national living wage to um, uh, to lift themselves out of, of poverty, to go over the poverty line. And, and so I think those sort of supply side measures to make work more attractive, to make investment more attractive from the private sector um, are all things that need to be set against the decisions that the, the state has made. Yeah, thanks. Great. Thank you very much, Harriet. And it is good to... Um it's good to remind us on the national living wage. It's the third, it's eleven forty-four, up by basically a pound. Third biggest cash rise um, in the minimum wages history. The, um, it's a really big deal. Well, actually, biggest cash rise in actual pound pence yeah. terms, but as a percentage of the cash yeah. number, it's the third biggest. Yeah. Uh, it's a really big deal. Louise, do you like whopping great tax cuts handed to your members or not? <laughs> how, do, how do you feel about those? So um, I think I could give you the, the overall kind of perspective that, that we had from business. But yeah, one of our top asks going into the budget was around full expensing. So we were really pleased to see that. And actually, that has been a long running campaign for us for about two years. And if you said full expensing to somebody then, they would have not known what that was. I expect there's still quite a lot of people in the room that don't know what it is. So we can unpack that a little What's bit. That? Why are you being rude to the audience as well? <laughs> You're all at it. Um, They're a very but, educated bunch. But yeah, we were really pleased to see that. But yeah, I think looking back for businesses going into this budget, it obviously is a very difficult economic environment at the moment. Businesses are very aware of that because they're feeling that every day themselves. 
and they're also very cognizant of that difficult fiscal position. Um, we had the Chancellor, we had a big conference on Monday, he came along to speak to us and he said, you know, I'm not going to be able to do everything. And businesses accept that, but I think of what he has done, what has been welcome, is we've seen that focus on a bit more stability and um, in terms of the economic policy and things that are targeted towards long-term economic growth. So that is incredibly welcome. Um, we're obviously getting a lot of insights from our members at the moment, but we um, have been speaking to a lot of them yesterday and we did a snap poll as well. So I thought it might be helpful to kind of share some of the top results Very from exciting, that. Very exciting, Louise. <laughs> um, you, can so, feel, you can feel it in the room. I know, just the energy is amazing. But um, in true, Let's have the poll. In, in kind of uh, CBI style, we tend to do, you know, the kind of rule of three. So I'll do you top three things that they like to see and then the top three things that, you know, we're kind of missing or weren't very welcome. So the top three, number one was definitely full expensing. Like I say that was incredibly important and the reason that that is important it is around that stability around the tax system around the business investments so that firms can plan their their kind of long-term investments that need business cycles when they're thinking about investment from the beginning to actually coming to the ground is much longer than the kind of three-year temporary policy that we had in the spring so that's very welcome and we think it should have a really big boost to business investment as well the second thing that was really welcome was around planning and around grid connectivity as well so again that has been something where businesses do want to invest it's been a real bottleneck to that and holding that up so that is really fantastic do you remind people what the planning is and what they could he didn't say there's a bit of dancing around being clear what's actually going to happen but it's quite radical if we read between the lines give people a little update on what the planning rules actually yeah so i think one of the big things for us but we are um still going through some of the detail is having a bit more of a fast track for planning so i mean in some ways um it's quite an interesting approach that businesses will be able to pay much more for planning applications, but then they have a guarantee that they will be processed um, much quicker um, uh, and kind of on time. And if they don't, uh, if, if, if the authorities don't manage to do that, then they get their money back from that. So like you say, it's in some ways quite a radical approach. Businesses are actually paying for the privilege of having that certainty over the planning applications. But again, I think that's where it will really help to make sure that they've got certainty over the investments that they want and to make. And on the energy side, there's kind of hints and basically hints that we're going to stop local people being able to block, but they'll get a bit of cash in exchange. It doesn't so, say it as I So that, that is definitely one of the parts of it. One of the big things that we were pleased to see, though, is that previously you had a system where you just put your application in for grid connectivity and it just, you know, it was at the end of the queue and, you, you know, they were processing time. But actually, there's a much more um, kind of a strategic approach where things that are big projects, which will unlock lots of other investment, will be fast-tracked as well. So I think, again, it's, it's quite kind of a smart approach to the system. So they were practical things that we were really pleased to see. I think the final thing that we were pleased to see, and goes to the point that Harriet made on, on a kind of simplification and just streamlining the tax system, was around R&D tax credits. Mm. So they brought together the system for small and larger businesses, taking some of the best bits from both, and importantly for us, thought about increasing the rates for loss-making businesses. Because actually, if you're a startup and you're doing that really uh, R&D intensive investment at the start is often when you're loss making. So it's improving the system on that. So, so they were the kind of top three <coughs> things from our side. Um, some of the things that were missing 
is we did see a few measures around uh, green investments and like I say grid connectivity was a positive part of that but overall it still feels that the UK doesn't have that big response to the kind of systems in the US with IRA and the EU uh, and we would like us to see a lot more on that. Um, the second thing, it was a bit of a kind of mixed bag, but around business rates. So we did again see some relief for smaller businesses and for retail hospitality and leisure. But actually for other businesses, they're gonna see business rates increase by inflation. It's one of those ones that you say that is indexed. So increasing their bills by 6.7%, that will be very tough for businesses when actually they're faced with a lot of these uh, kind of calls on their cash at the moment. And whilst we very welcome about the national living wage increases, actually the two of those things together might be still quite difficult for some businesses. Um, and then the final thing that was something that was missing is again, we had um, quite a few measures around uh, labour availability, which again continues to be an issue and some positive movements around occupational health and support for that. But there wasn't really anything on the skill side of things um, and that continues to be a really big issue for firms at the moment so again we'd still like to see um, further reforms around the apprenticeship levy and i think again when you're thinking about the areas that we want to grow in the economy thinking about digital skills thinking about uh, some of these green technologies that's where we need to see this continual training and learning through an employee's lifetime i think over the next decade we're expecting that 90 percent of us are going to have to reskill and upskill in some way um, so we would have liked to have seen a bit more in that package as well but overall I think given the hand that the Chancellor had he did do a lot and that was focused on long-term business investment and that is really positive. Great that's a very good counter through Louise thank you very much indeed <coughs> and it's great to pick up some of the big stuff that we haven't talked about so far. Um, right okay we've got about half an hour and we're going to cover the forecasts the um, what not just the like did Richard get it right or wrong? But they're like, what do they tell us about the country a little bit? The um, policy and then uh, or bit of the politics at the end where Harriet can tell us whether there's going to be an election on which day exactly, <laughs> how it's going to go uh, and all the rest. We'll cover that. Now, all of those of you on Slido, it's hashtag Autumn Watch. Do you see what we did there? The, um, has Chris Packham been cancelled? Does Autumn Watch still exist? <laughs> Do you feel like he's going to pop up at some point? Well, I don't know, anyway. I thought it was quite good. Anyway, right, so that's what you need to go on to slide and put it in. So let's start on the forecasts the, um, uh, and go through this. So let's do through inflation into monetary policy, whereas then, as I say, Harriet's been um, munching along this before. So let's do an unfair question for Richard, first of all, and then a tough question for Harry. So on, an unfair question for you, Richard. So one way of looking at what's happened is that the, the big change, basically, on the economic forecasts is you just moving back in line with everybody else on inflation over the next few years, rather than having quite a low level of inflation forecast for the next two years. You're saying, OK, it'll be roughly 2%, like everybody else says. And that's just adding 4% to the price level. And that's driving a lot of what is going on um, here. So that's the unfair one for you. Is that a fair characterization or not? And then Harriet, one for you would be, if you were in the Bank of England, you had you had three of them in, not three of them? Four. Four. Of them four. Yeah. Christ, a lot. Four of them in, it's <laughs> a lot of monetary policy mm. makes in one space. Um, they um, in earlier this week. If you're them, do you want the Chancellor in the middle of a rate hiking cycle to be fiscally splurging to this degree? Because I think it's worth saying, it's a, this is a large fiscal loosening. Mm. Like, it's the largest tax set of tax cuts since 1988. List trust doesn't count. The, um, uh, so it's a big deal. Should you, if you're the Bank of England, would you rather the Chancellor stop doing that? And I did think they sounded a bit more nervy at your committee mm. than they have in recent mm. weeks. Is that because they've heard mm. rumours? So you pulled it out, Rory. 
Inflation forecast, you just caught up with everyone else. Uh, so, so we did. We did our inflation forecast back in March um, when uh, everyone thought, if you believe the markets, that energy prices were going to be much higher. And if you asked employers, uh, wage growth was going to be a lot lower um, than it's turned out to be. So um, I, I think that we have been uh, surprised by both energy prices coming back faster, um, but also um, wage settlements uh, running ahead of what employers' expectations were and surveys were saying. So um, I think we've all been playing catch up in terms of understanding both the level of inflation, but more importantly, as I, as I mentioned, its composition, which is, is it more externally driven or internally driven? It's turned out to be more internally driven. Um, that's better news uh, for real, real living standards, it's better news for the public finances, but also means it's more persistent out over the rest of the forecast. Because if it was just about energy prices coming down, you would expect inflation to come down. Um, but if you've got more domestic wage pressure, that means it turns out to be more persistent into the future. Good. Harriet, how nervy were your Bank of England people? Yeah, I think really interesting uh, session that we had uh, with the four members of the Monetary Policy Committee. And I think that um, what it, the market was uh, clearly pricing in uh, is that we've reached the top of the table mountain uh, that they've been talking about and that we're travelling across the top of uh, table mountain at uh, five and a quarter and that the next change in terms of the Bank of England's rates um, is going to be a downward one. I think uh, the markets were expecting uh, about August. Uh, so that was the context in which they uh, came to see us. If you recall at the beginning of the whole inflationary spiral, the commentary coming from them was around, you know, this blip in inflation is very temporary. Our, our job is to stop it becoming a second order effect. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of sort of almost apologetic commentary around the fact that they were hiking rates. And I think that um, both with the modelling of future inflation and with some of that commentary that uh, when Ben Bernanke, who's been asked to do a review of some of the decision making around um, this period, um, a, a reports next early next year, I wouldn't be surprised if there is a bit of a focus on some of the commentary that came out of the Bank of England at the beginning of the inflation period. We've had sort of expert testimony uh, on that and sort of contrasting it with uh, the way in which I think the Fed was much clearer at the beginning of the inflationary period that uh, you know their job was to control inflation and they would do what was ever was needed to control inflation. Um, I got uh, on last week with the Bank of England a lot of again commentary and I think they were trying to uh, say that they disagreed with the market expectations. I, I would personally prefer it if the commentary that we heard was around, you know, we will continue to monitor what the Chancellor does in terms of the fiscal expansion, we'll continue to monitor the inflationary pressures. We know that a lot of the rate hikes have not yet fed through in terms of people's uh, household incomes. We will weigh all of those things. What you can be sure is that we will continue to make sure we take decisions that bring inflation back under control. And as far as the commentary is concerned, I would prefer, you know, that sort of consistent message rather than, a, you know, slightly apologetic message at the beginning of the tightening period. And now quite a lot of often quite contradictory uh, commentary from MPC members 
um, disagreeing of what, what's priced into the market. So um, I think the important thing all policymakers now agree is that we've got to uh, control inflation, get it back in its box, make sure that there's enough supply side measures in this uh, autumn statement to increase the productive capacity of the UK economy without being inflationary. And uh, that, uh, you know, inflation has been uh, the, the worst tax on the whole economy and the, the, the sensible thing for everyone to do is to make sure that it gets back in its box. One of the uh, big tensions here for, this, for the autumn statement is that the story has been mm. inflation is falling, we've halved inflation, mm. so now there's, mm. there's space for fiscal loosening. But what's actually allowing that to happen is much higher and stickier inflation, mm. as Richard was just talking mm. about, than has been expected. And I think to your point about the Bank of England, you have the central bank uh, saying they're worried about inflation becoming mm. even stickier. Mm. But you have, in a way, you have the fiscal policymaker basically saying, well, um, inflation is behind us, let's start loosening policy now to some degree. As Torsten mm. says, that's a historically large loosening. So we, I think it's really important to, to view that difference in policy here. And I think you know, what they need to do and what they said they would do is they would take the fiscal um, stimulus as given and uh, reflect that in terms of their decision making. So uh, does that mean that the next move is an increase in rates? I'm uh, myself not convinced that that's necessary at this point. Um, I think that it may mean that we're on Table Mountain for, for longer. Um, because don't forget that they hike rates a lot and a lot of the impact on that on household budgets has, and on businesses hasn't yet fed through to uh, to the bottom line. Actually, let's use that as a pivot because the one of the interesting things that we've learned over the course of the last nine months or so but is, is in your forecast is the fact that household incomes in the past, so over the last year, look a bit better than people expected. Part of that is about wages, but actually lots of it is interest rates feeding through into huge increases in savings income, the um, really big rises in savings income. The, um, that's, and, that's, and that increase in savings income has happened a lot quicker than the increase in mortgage costs, which is the takeaway half of the interest rate. Yeah? So the bit that slows the economy, as Harriet says, is, is ahead of us for lots of people, average £3,000 rise in mortgage bills for people remortgaging next year. But the, the good news happened quicker, the, um, which is why your income forecasts go much perkier than before for the past, and then you just say all oh, the pain's been delayed into next year. But the banks really did drag their feet raising savings rates, so I'll land that It's still huge. I mean, it, look, our numbers look like you go from like five billion savings income to ninety billion within a year. I mean, they're very, even if they are like disgracefully letting down their customers, Harriet, <laughs> uh, which I'm sure we should be saying. Like, I mean, I, I think the Bank of England would have been even more upset if they passed it on even quicker mm. from a monetary perspective. But is that a fair description of uh, scale on the income side? It, it is. And I think while banks were slow to put up deposit rates, they've got up sooner than they've been able to put up mortgage rates because more people are now on two or five year fixes. And so um, uh, interest rates in the very near term look as though they've been slightly positive for households. But in the longer term, they're going to be more challenging because more people are going to roll off their yep. fixed rate mortgages onto, onto the variable portion. And that's, that's another lesson for us. Nobody wrote papers saying would that be what happened in the mm. next interest rate cycle, right? Mm. Some people did say, yes, more fixed rate mortgages. Nobody said, 
this savings income is now very heavily geared to really low rates. It will rise quite fast, when, and that will affect your monetary policy system. So another one, think, think about the future. Don't just like write about what's going on uh, right now. Do you want to expect, on, on, you're weirdly, you're chillaxed about the effect on inflation of a very large fiscal loosening. There's a few questions along the, these lines online. Some of them are also on the, um, here we go, Another here's an anonymous one, maybe from a market participant. The, um, but saying, given you've done a big fiscal loosening, the markets haven't responded to that particularly. The, um, they're like, fine. Because um, we've, We've done we've done a half a quasi quarting in terms of the scale of the tax cuts, roughly. So it's still a really big deal. Like I say, biggest tax cuts since 1988. The um, uh, markets haven't massively reacted. You haven't said it puts any upward pressure on inflation net. I think. Uh, it's 0.1 percent on the price level in five years' time. So not, so ma not what, material. So why is it so small? I mean, in, this, in essence, because borrowing is unchanged. I mean, there's there's a hefty element of money illusion here because. <laughs> Higher inflation is, brought, is, is bringing in more tax revenue, um, and the Chancellor decided to give that back to taxpayers in the form of, form of lower So rates. the loosening is inflationary, it's just that the already baked in tax rises are deflationary. Uh, yes, and, and I guess, you know... So could inflation have come down quicker if you hadn't done the 20 billion, even though the net effect uh, of that... I, I, I only do one forecast at a time. Oh, what, <laughs> what a cop-out. But, but they all know what you just did. <laughs> <laughs> but, but there's also effects of uh, duty... Alcohol duty freeze. Yeah, so they, they that's a direct. Okay, but that's a but that's a pretend effect on inflation. There's a small near-term stimulus to demand, but it's it's it's, it's much less than one percent of GDP. Okay. If you were a monetary policymaker, do you think you'd be as chilled as you I'm, sound here? I'm not a monetary policymaker. So <laughs> <I'm really laughs> but you are a cop-out merchant, right? The um, uh, Harry, are you Harry? Are you totally fiscal ch fiscally chilled? Like, hey, let's look at the debt forecast, right? Everyone says, oh look, debt's falling. I mean, it's not, is it? No. If we're honest, debt's not falling. No. Debt's not falling under any of the major parties' plans. We just keep pretending it's going to fall one day in five years' time, but we never get to five years' time due to the whole time moving forward thing. It's a joke, isn't it? Well, debt is um, turning out to be lower than uh, Richard was forecasting last year. Um, so that allows the uh, government to say that uh, debt is, is falling, and that is one of the, the fiscal rules. But... Um, yeah, I think I think it, it, it could have fallen more if they had uh, done less of the things that James has outlined. Because yeah. um, when we look at it, we're going to be we're going to basically be flat. The next recession is going to happen mm. at some point because they do. We're going to ratchet up again. Mm. We're not. We're never going to see debt falling on these uh, projections, whatever anyone uh, says to you. Right. Let's move on to a bit of policy they're um, making. So James set out earlier to us. Our big picture is. Giveaway on tax cuts, uh, basically implausible on the current day-to-day -day spending side, but plausible but undesirable on the public investment side is the big picture of what is going on. But let's, just, let's do national insurance uh, first. So, I mean, this is what, a, I'm not calling you a technocratic <laughs> one, obviously. Let's do <laughs> You're a fun kind of person. Louise <laughs> <laughs> is fun. Not kind of. Louise is very fun, guys. But but the um, but this is what this is the kind of if you're gonna do an income tax incomes related tax cut, this is the one you do, mm. isn't it? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, obviously, that's that's more a kind of question on the consumer side. I think, like I say, from businesses that support to consumers is obviously very welcome. Some of the simplification changes that they made within national insurance is also very welcome. I think the thing actually for us it would go back to is that you have that cut for employee NICs, but you don't actually have the cut for employer NICs. In the past, when we have had very big increases in national living wages, the two have been done together to help kind of smooth that impact. We haven't seen that this time round. But you want more, even more tax cuts? <laughs> Give you ten billion quid, Louise. Well, well, I mean, it would be good to go back to that one actually, in terms of, and again, thinking about that sustainability picture. Actually, the reason why we were calling for full expensing is actually we think it's the way that you can use the tax system smartly. So actually, what it is that you're doing is for a business that is investing in their plant and machinery throughout this whole period, what they've been able to do is offset that against their corporation tax bill. But we've had various different guises of how they get that money. And it has yo-yoed so much over the last couple of years. But the system that we kind of used to have before the temporary measure in the spring and before super deduction is that you'd be able to claim those allowances but over the lifetime of the asset. So it could take up to kind of 30 years. And actually what full expensing does, it says in the year that you make that investment, you can take that off your corporation tax bill. And that's particularly important at the moment when, like I say, so okay, well you can take, you've, kind of you've walked into a question then. Have I walked into You have walked one? in. I was going to make sure we get some of the online questions in. So... Um, can you explain? Okay, here you go. Can you explain the economics behind the full expensing measure? The um, I don't know which one of you was insulting the audience by saying they didn't know what full expensing was. But anyway, <laughs> this person wants a bit of education, which is why do you get a boost in the long-term capital stock? So we're saying that in models you get a higher level of business capital in the long term for this way of taxing uh, capital than you do if you and if you allow people to expense up front versus doing it over long time periods. Why? It's early in the morning for this question. I know, but Glad I, you're aiming this it's a democracy. <laughs> people have asked the question. So if Richard says it knocks up growth, we think a bit conservatively, but a bit. Why does that knock up growth? So it increases growth because you reduce your cost of capital when you're making that investment. And that is the, the kind of factor that, that Richard will have put in the forecast, which is really beneficial. So that means that your optimal capital stock is higher in the long run in your technocratic kind of way. I think one of the Fun other things, <laughs> one of the other reasons why, like I say, it is uh, has been so important for many of the businesses that we've been speaking to over the last couple of years is because at the moment when firms are looking at their investment plans, they have got so many other things that they're trying to meet as well in terms of those increased energy bills, those higher costs on, on labour as well. So we have seen investment intentions being squeezed. So actually... So that's a cash flow benefit. So that's a cash flow benefit. And I think that is why the measure will have such an impact. It's not going to be the silver bullet for everybody and for everything. But actually, again, in terms of the way that you can design a tax system, which actually... Apart from the cost of, of money, doesn't really cost you anything in the long run. You're just bringing those allowances forward and can have a real kind of real world economic impact. So that's why it's, it's, it's so important. And, and isn't the policy intention to therefore get much more uh, productive capital being uh, employed so that the, this challenge in terms of raising the rate of productive growth in the UK economy exactly. that's, is answered. That's, that's why the, 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 the kind of capital investment that we've got in this country is, is much too low. We need to increase that. That's incredibly important for productivity and therefore ultimately what we're talking about here in terms of, of higher living standards as well. And I think that going back to some of those questions before, when you're thinking about that high debt position, I think we talked about quite often before 
fall that we have kind of tax rates like the US spending plans like the EU, you could actually choose and go in one of either of those directions and either, you know, cut your public spending much more harshly going forwards or thinking about hiking tax. But actually, the third way that you'd want to get to is thinking about increasing growth and productivity. And I think that's why this is the kind of measure that you'd like to see alongside some of the planning and grid connectivity, etc., that is moving in that better direction. But I'm, I'm just interested, it seems very early days to have evaluated that it's working so well. That, but how are your our abstract yeah. models say it will work? It will work. Okay. <laughs> they say Thank it will you. work. It's in the spreadsheet okay. and everything. Okay, good. The, um, and, and we, we should say it only benefits, mm. remember, this only really benefits big mm. businesses, mm. small businesses based. There's a reason why the CBI wants this, but the FSB is like, <laughs> they already get all their uh, investment. They already basically. get the annual investment allowance, which basically does the same thing. But again, interestingly, on the yo-yo, that is a policy that over the last 15 years, we've had eight different changes to that. So I think, again, the message around this is around permanence. permanence. It's around stability. Businesses can plan their investment. All right, stop asking for more. <laughs> the, um, right, I'll go back to national insurance because you completely ducked national insurance. Right, who in the room is over the state pension age? Anyone? Right, so you get diddly squat. Why do you get diddly squat? Because you don't pay any bloody national insurance in the first place, sir. The, um, and so we've cut national insurance. What has that done? It's reduced the bias in the tax system that taxes younger workers more heavily than people with other sources of income or who are over the state pension age. Yeah. Anyone want to self-identify in the room as being a loaded self-employed person? By, and by loaded, I mean <laughs> that you earn more than £32,000. So not, I mean like mini, mini, mini people are actually leaving. <laughs> <laughs> not, I'm not going to ask you any more personal finance questions. No one wants to identify as minted self-employed. What a surprise. Right. The minted self-employed. So the Chancellor actually said this is a big package nice to the self-employed yesterday when he was starting out. Actually, the, um, he's saying that to cover the fact that the, what it's doing very sensibly is narrowing the tax advantage of being self-employed for minted self-employed people. Who do we mean? IT workers, stop avoiding your taxes, people. Accountants, lawyers, right, are paying less tax because there's a, and what he's done by, yes, reducing by 1p the self-employment rate, but removing the flat rate class 2 nicks while cutting employees by 2 pence is to mean that if you're a higher paid person, you're now better off being an employee. This is why it's good mm. micro-wonkery, mm. yeah, because that is costing us a lot of money. The bias the, it doesn't deal with the big problem, which is employer national insurance, mm. but it's a big step in the right direction. Sorry for you minted self-employed people. Mm -hmm. um, you're still getting a tax cut. You're just not getting as big a tax cut as your friends that are employed. And you should probably be employed too, in many, many cases. Pay your taxes, people. Right, let's do... Um, uh, let's do the big policy choice then on spending. So Ian here, who was cheeky, you can't ask a question if you work for the Resolution Foundation, Ian. <laughs> right. We already know what you think. Right, but anyway, but it's, it's the most popular question on Slido, so I'm going to ask it. So the tax giveaway, roughly 20 billion quid, probably lower in the long run because business, the investment package should be cheaper, is basically paid for by penciling in spending cuts after the election. Now, so I think we'd be really, there's, there's, a, there's a number of different moving parts going on with this difficult within this spending problem, okay? I mean, you need to go through them all. So three things to hold in your heads. Life's complicated, but I, unlike these guys, have faith in you all, right? Three things to hold in your heads. Right now, in the spending review period, runs out in 24-25, you've got cash budgets for capital budgets and for day-to-day -day spending budgets, right? They're all set in cash. Higher inflation, which has got its higher inflation forecast, just means those spending, that doesn't go as far. So if you're running a school, you're paying for higher... Wages for your st staff costs, yeah? You're not getting extra cash. You're getting a bit of extra cash, but you're not getting much extra cash 
in the system as a whole to pay for that. So short-term squeeze on day-to-day -day public spending from high inflation and on capital spending in the short term. Yeah, That's what's driving James's 14% cut in unprotected departments' day-to-day -day spending. Most of the action is in the short term. Right? After the spending review period, from April 25 onwards, the cuts become much more focused on capital spending because capital spending after that is held flat in, flat in cash terms. Literally a cash number sits in Richard's book runs along and is falling in real terms by these big increases in inflation in the medium term. Whereas day-to-day -day spending is just sticking at 1% real growth. So there's some inflation protection for higher inflation for day-to-day -day spending beyond the spending view. It's just that we're spending so much of it on health and the rest that we then get cuts for unprotected departments. Okay, so that's what, so you've got, there's a lot of different things going on, right? The bit that is definitely not deliverable is the low level of day-to-day -day public service spending. Yeah, the bit that is deeply undesirable, because you definitely can deliver these cuts in public investment. How do we know? Because we keep underinvesting and we've practiced it really good. So I'm really confident if we keep want to get back to underinvesting, we can definitely do it again. We just won't deliver the net zero transition, won't deliver our transport uh, ambitions, won't be able to level up large parts of the country requiring large levels of public investment. So the question here is, for, and this is really a question for you guys, which is what do we do about the fact that your forecasts include now implausible public service, public spending figures. They, um, so you can tell what you think. And then Harriet, why don't you lot just, at the, given that the OBR works for Parliament, just tell the OBR to stop using these made up spending assumptions. So you can point to that while Richard tells us the technocratic answer. So I do think that this is a lacuna in our fiscal framework. Um, that means problem, yeah? Pro uh, so yeah a posh a word for problem. A gap. Okay, fine. Um, something that's missing. In the I'm in Britain now. And I think You've done Brexit and you can speak sorry. English. Um, it's, it, but I think it's, a, it's akin to something which the Treasury Committee had highlighted in one of their previous reports to which we responded, which is on fuel duty. Mm. Yes, which is, yes we are, thank you for that. We, we, are, we are required to <laughs> yeah. use government policy mm. when we set our forecast. We can't forecast alternative policies. Fuel duty has been a perennial challenge. The government always says it's going to index it to inflation. It always freezes it. And so the Treasury Committee basically said, let's end this charade. They've frozen fuel duty every year since 2011. We want to see the forecast done on a frozen fuel duty basis as well as an index fuel duty basis and we now do that um, and what you notice nowadays is chances make sure when they have fiscal rules they meet them on a frozen and indexed fuel duty basis so I think that's been an improvement in terms of transparency and credibility of our forecasts I think I think uh, but this is actually a bigger one um, which is that uh, you know the government sets detailed spending plans at the moment out to the end of 2024-25 um, beyond that um, it is just a big question mark um, and uh, you know, when when we publish, you know, this is the, this is the chart for public spending plans of the government in our in our forecast. Chart four point nine for those yeah. of you at home. You can see there is lot there is lots of detail for this year and next year, and then there's four years of just four mm. numbers. Mm. And so people ask, what do you make of the government spending plans? There aren't any spending plans. Mm. There are four numbers, and they go from around six hundred billion to six hundred and fifty billion. Um, there's no detail about how much is going on health, how much is going on transport, or anything else. If the question is, can the government actually cut spending in real terms? Can the government reduce spending as a share of GDP? Yes. George Osborne did it in 2010. Is it plausible to do it in the future? Well, it depends on what kind of choices they're willing to make to make that happen. So I think it's, you know, it's, it, I think it is, there's less of an obvious answer on public spending than there was on fuel duty because there was a very clear pattern of behavior across chancellors to just not index. There's a, pr but just, okay, but just be a bit mean to you. There's a pretty clear pattern of behavior here. 
before every spending review recently, we jack up the level of public spending relative to what we pretended it was going to be in the forecasts. Sure, but we didn't have debt at 100% of GDP and interest rates at, at 5% at the time. So you know, there, are, there are political choices involved there. What we don't know is what the government's political choices are, because their spending framework doesn't require them to make them. In any other country in the world, if you look at their fiscal forecast, they've got a detailed spending plan going out five years telling you how much they're spending on health, education, transport. In our framework, we have you know, these things kind of run out until the, until the government makes a political decision to run a spending review. Um, that's not how it works in other countries. And so if they want, so if they want to fill like that gap... It, would you like Harriet to solve this for you by writing I, you another I letter? Think, I think it's up to the committee to decide what they want to mm. recommend. Oh, look how would, good you are about listen, democracy. We would, we would mm. listen to their recommendation. Mm. Harriet, can you write them a letter? Well, I'm, I'm thrilled, actually, Richard, and thank you for putting in that bit about what we call the fuel duty fiction. Um, into your report because, uh, you know, we did feel very strongly that it was um, distorting decisions but also um, distorting the, the forecasts. And uh, I think, you know, what I heard the Chancellor say yesterday is that um, he's going to increase the spending envelopes by 1% over inflation. Obviously, when we have him in front of us next week, we can ask more detailed questions about this. Um, and also about the work that the previous uh, Chief Secretary was doing in terms of public sector productivity and uh, that the new Chief Secretary has taken over. And that is mentioned in the autumn statement. So I think uh, what I hear in those different phrases is that they are looking very closely at how they can get more uh, for the same amount out of public services and you know where are the efficiencies how can we run this more um, uh, effectively how can we use technology to bring in efficiencies and you know i think that's a healthy thing to do um, when you're spending that much money so i i'm keen to hear more about that productivity review that the chief secretary is doing what, what do you think about the big cuts to public investment. So public investment levels are now coming down below the average of the 2010s, which everyone, including George Osborne now says were too low. What do you think? I think that um, there's been a, a big effort underway to improve things like per pupil funding in schools. So, you know, that that's definitely um, got a lot better in terms yeah. of uh, what I hear from my local schools. There's been um, a, a, an, an enormous amount now reallocated from what was scored for HS2 north yeah. of, of Birmingham um, that is going into transport budgets in various different ways. What impact does that have on what was already scored in the transport budget? So I think there is, a, as you say, a big piece of work for our committee and for others to look at um, those, those um, departmental spending plans. Um, but I do think you've got to continue to prioritise um, the health spending. I welcomed the announcements that were in there yesterday about the health support to help people back into work and things yeah. like that. The health spending is one of the bits that is being hit in the short term. The higher inflation now is pushing down the real spending power of the NHS, even though it's protected in the medium term. So that's one of the things on the list. So Louise, on your list of things business are worried about, so you've got your massive giveaway for your large businesses, well done. That's boosting business investment, pro-growth, happy days, Richard upgrades the growth forecast on that basis. But we've, we've slashed the hell out of public investment and the levels, the level cut is 20 billion. What's your business investment upgrade? Uh, 14 billion. 14 billion. So the cut in the capital stock of the country as a whole is actually, without getting into the technicalities of different depreciation and stuff, uh, which we're not gonna do because everyone's will to live will crumble. But um, uh, why are you not out attacking the cuts in business and in, in in public investment? Because we know that in the end is, I mean, there's fewer policies that we know have a growth effect 
than higher public investment, not least because in such a centralised state, we can generally get it done. We can actually spend the money. So what, what, are you not worried about what that's doing to growth? So I think that it is quite concerning, actually, if we're, we're kind of keeping capital budgets in, in kind of crash terms and, and kind of seeing some of the cuts out there going forwards. I think, like you say, it would be interesting to see if we go into the general election year again, that that changes post that. And I think that might be where it, you know, becomes a kind of bigger issue. It's something that's probably just gone below the radar a little bit at the moment. But that is absolutely important. And I think when we, again, talking to, to businesses about the kind of infrastructure that we have in the country at the moment, like there is a lot, <laughs> lot of debate and a lot of strong feelings around that. And actually is where you are seeing now that really, again, creating bottlenecks and issues if you're thinking about transport network and the kind of save the railways etc i think one of the big questions again going forwards though and where you're thinking about the general position with the public finances is where we can think about where we have public investment but it's crowding in that private investment as well and actually whether that needs to be a bigger debate that we have in the country about how we build things together and i think that that is something that businesses are willing to uh, talk about but in order to do that they need to see again you know what are the investment plans that that the country is looking at and the ways in which that you can you can make that investment happen. Sounds great. Right, let's wrap up on the politics. The um, Richard can say it's got nothing to do with him. He can't talk about it. So, uh, but everyone else can. So I'm going to start with. Well, actually, first of all, let's start with the poll first of all. So here you are, and you can all vote on this. The um, so, given what got announced yesterday, broadly forecasts plus the policy stuff, is an early election. Early means May. Late means the autumn. Never means January 25. Does it make it more likely, less likely? A dead cert, which is what <clears throat> two of the ministers I bumped into yesterday were saying after the statement. The, um, or it's never going to happen anyway. Doesn't make any difference. So the um, right, Howard, you're the only one of us that has to actually get elected in a election when it happens. Yeah. It's slightly more, slightly higher stakes for you than yeah. everyone else. The um, which of these is it? More likely, less likely? It's definitely going to happen. It's never going to happen. Uh, well, it obviously is going to happen. And, it's, and no, an early one, so that should And say. it's not going... Uh, the, well, the election will happen. It's not going to be January well, that's 2025. <laughs> yeah, it's not going to be the last possible okay. date. Um, so that narrows things down um, to the most likely periods uh, being where there are already elections next year on the 2nd of May, um, where... Uh, we, you know, you're not going to want to do a December election again or a November election again. So, you know, something in uh, the earlier part of the autumn or the late part of the summer, if not May, um, I think more likely um, uh, the the autumn than than May. But I'm going to be ready whenever. Okay. Yeah. Very good. Okay, I'm taking that as an October prediction. The um Obviously, CBI hasn't got a position. We don't want the boring answer. But what does Louise, <laughs> what does fun Louise Helen think is the answer? So, um, personally, I think that there'll be a lot of watching to see how this budget has landed. I think, like I say, given the difficult hand, I think that there has been quite a bit that people will will look to uh, and welcome. I think that. Obviously, it's interesting that some of the changes that we talked about, like NICs are coming in a bit earlier than maybe they might do otherwise. So that might give a bit of an indication. Some of those are coming in in January when normally they're coming in April. So whether that gives us um, a little bit of feeling as to, so to you may, things a bit earlier. You may or October. Those are the only real options in life. Come on, do it. I, I think in terms of your poll, it makes it more likely than it was. Okay. But I don't know if that makes it the choice at the moment. James? Yet. Sticky inflation has basically given the government the chance to do a pre-election budget here. So they've taken the opportunity, they've seen it, didn't really seem like they were going to, even thinking that way a few weeks ago. 
But having done that, they've now got this risk, this political risk. So if you have another fiscal event, you have a big risk because you're so hard up against your fiscal rules, you basically have a risk that you end up having to backtrack either on taxes or do something so even crazy. mess up your election spending. plans. So <laughs> that, that, I, I think this sort of... Well, you well, know, May or October, come on, the, the, answer the, the question. So, so I th either think it's pretty early, so you don't have another fiscal event, or most likely October. I think that was October. Is that what you're saying? Yes, I think it's saying October. Let's see what the punters are saying. And then I'm going to show you a chart to give you I'll get an answer. More, you all cop out as well, you see. You don't go for an option. Okay, right. Uh, can we bring up the chart that was... Is there a chart hidden at the back of James's slide pack? Tara, I'm looking at you. It's, it's not hidden, it's just... Well, there. Okay, is it there? All right, all right. All right. No heckling. <laughs> Let's see if we can bring up you a chart just to wrap us up without breaking the IT system. I'm talking to Phil here while we find out. Whether this it exists. Exists. telling you why you're wrong, by the way. So this is why I, this would be my view, which is in the end, it's not that I'm a communist, it's just that the economic structure matters and the political structure matters. No, 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 no. that, Tara, uh, just, just at the end of the actual presentation. So basically, look at the level of the poll lead the Labour Party currently okay. holds. Here we go, here we go, look, we're in action, live. That was a productivity gain for you all right there. <laughs> okay, you probably can't see much of this, right? This is showing you poll lead uh, for the governing party, so the governing party's ahead, the governing party is behind on the average poll at this time, and it's showing you, does the election happen, this is going back to the 1950s, I think we went back to, does the election happen really early, or does the election happen late? Sometimes democracy actually gets delayed beyond the five years, right? What it tells you is that when a government is behind, it never, ever calls an early election <coughs> due to the whole Turkey's Christmas problem. Right? Then, so I'm not saying it's impossible that everyone's right, that their government is planning for an early election, but planning for an early election is different to calling an early election. And purely on the basis of history, this is no political judgment about what people are thinking right now. Nobody ever calls an election unless these polls narrow a lot. I shall see you in October. Right, let's wrap up. So, uh, final word. Where's 2017 on that one? Mm, 2017 is somewhere in the middle. Oh, yeah. Okay. Really early, but there's some other stuff going on, I hear then. Okay. And also, the poll lead looked big before the election started in 2017 okay. and then narrowed very rapidly, as you'll probably painfully remember. Mm -hmm. the, um, as Theresa May was strong but not so stable. The, um, right, the, um, so closing thoughts then from each of you on where this leads us. I think let's just focus, let's level back up again to just to the whole the country. Because one of the things I took away from like, reading all these documents, there's a huge load of good policy work that's worth reading in all the government's documents. But if you focus on the big picture of what the forecasts are telling us, it's telling us that we've got a pretty difficult, difficult situation where taxes are going up a lot, but they're going up for substance reasons, not because Jeremy Hunt is a closet communist. The debt interest bill, higher welfare payments for the old and for the sick, and not wanting to go back to George Osborne depths of austerity, those three together is basically giving you 4.5% of GDP up on tax. And in the end, that's trumping individuals' policy decisions. So. It's, it's, it's a tough time governing Britain, whoever is doing it now and whoever wins after the next election. So, James, why don't you give us your closing remarks, then we'll go along the panel, and then we shall release ourselves to a post-autumn statement day. Yeah, so there's been a bigger, pol more policy than we expected. There's a, a lot to be happy about in here, particularly the uprating of benefits, particularly the LHA repegging, full expensing, great policy in terms of driving growth and you know doing personal tax cuts through national insurance helping with our with our tax system but you know 
there's a definitely a risk here. There's definitely a gamble. There's no election next year. They're not doing the same the same uh, autumn statement here. So that's the big thing here. Will it turn out to be a political, economic, fiscal gamble? Great. Louise? I think given where we are in the political cycle and the kind of hand that Chancellor has given, I think actually having that focus on long-term business investment was really positive from yesterday. But I think that some of those bigger ch- kind of challenges that we talked about today, they're only going to be tackled once we're um, into that new parliament. Richard, Harriet said that the chance to get stressed when you kind of want to <laughs> forecast, but do you ever sit there doing the forecast, watching Britain getting poorer? We haven't really touched on the living standards <laughs> forecast much, but like Richard's forecast show 20 years with no wage growth, two decades, 2008 to 2028. They're pretty depressing. Tax rises going up, investment falling, do you ever just get a bit down and think I should just stop this whole gig? Oh, I mean, the forecasts are challenging. I think what we also try and do in putting them together and in talking to the Chancellor is give him credit where his policies do boost the growth potential of the economy. And 0.3% doesn't, you know, percent doesn't sound very much, but it's, it's one of the biggest growth upgrades we've ever done mm. for policy in our forecasts. Uh, and that is just because it is really hard to you know, accelerate the growth rate of this country. You're dealing with a capital stock of four trillion pounds and a labor force of 34 million. And so 14 billion pounds worth of investment and an extra 100,000 people does make a difference. But it's, you know, it's a few drops in a big ocean and you've got to keep dropping it in if you want to make a difference in the long run. You do. The answer to most big questions in life is being radical but incrementalist over long periods of time. It's a long game like self-improvement, people. Right, Harriet, last word to you. Last word to me, uh, I would say compared to last year, you know, with the much better outturn in terms of the UK economy, the resilience of the labour market, the strength of earnings growth now ahead of uh, inflation uh, makes me feel very optimistic. And this is that we've gone through a turning point from this very, very difficult and challenging period that we've been um, um, asked. And then the 110 supply side measures, I think, just... Uh, they're crucial to deliver that productive uh, growth capacity for the UK economy to address some of uh, the negativity in Richard's longer-term forecasts. It's not the Richard's negative. I know. It's Britain's been a bit negative. Right, OK. And a last bit of optimism from the Resolution Foundation is, odds on, we've only got to do one more overnight okay. analysis of one of these before an election. So, you know, <laughs> everyone's going to sleep a bit more. I'm looking forward to that. So, anyway, can everyone thank the panel very much for their thoughts today? Happy, As I said, thank you again to the team upstairs that did all the hard work. Thank you all for coming. Enjoy the rest of your afternoon and read the report for more details of what is in the autumn statement. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.